Mark chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 35. Again, if you've missed any portion of the teaching, it's available in the media room. You can go online. There's lots of opportunities. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. It says, then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them and said, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. You know, there's a lot of images that can come into your mind when you hear the word family. What do you think about? Do you think about your mother and father, brothers and sisters, your family, my family? What is it that you think about when you think about what makes a family? What constitutes family ties? In this chapter of Mark's gospel, remember what we've already seen. The courage of Jesus in verses 1 through 6. As Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand. That miracle will generate a certain sense of wonder among certain people, but also a sense of malice in the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians. That miracle will prompt a plot to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. We've seen the compassion of Jesus in verses 7 through 12 as he restores the sick and releases those who are oppressed by demons who find themselves in subjugation to Satan's kingdom. And we see the call of Jesus to those who would become apostles in verses 13 through 19. And then this explosion of criticism from Family and foes in verses 20 through 30. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to provide for us some much needed clarification. The family of Jesus has come looking for him to provide an intervention. All the curiosity, all of the drama, all of the animosity had made their way from Capernaum up over the mountains into the village of Nazareth. And they've headed over the hill and they've come down to Capernaum. Now, whatever else you thought about when you thought about family, let me make some suggestions to you of what I think are some elemental Portions of what makes a family a family that we can even find in this particular passage of Scripture. Whatever true kinship is, whatever it means to have a family, it probably includes a common experience. It probably includes a common interest. It probably should include a common obedience and a common goal. You may have grown up in a home where you share a mother and father. Maybe you don't even share a mother and a father. Maybe you had a shared common experience where you grew up in the same city or, or, or you moved in the same way that the rest of your family did. There was a common interest, but there was no common obedience that everybody did whatever they wanted to do. And whatever the goal du jour was, it might have been dictated by mom or dad. 
George Barna said family is certainly not dead in America, but it looks and behaves very differently than it used to, unquote. Families have changed, haven't they? For those of you who are mature, I'm trying to use a polite way of saying old. Okay, but for those of you who are old like me, you've probably seen some of those dramatic changes take place over the last few decades. But guess what? Jesus is now going to contrast a physical family and a spiritual family. Let's look at the servant's family. Look at verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside, they sent to him calling him. Now, I need you to remember why his brothers and mother had come. And that's found in verse 21. Remember earlier in the chapter where it says, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him for they said he is out of his mind. In other words, the family of Jesus have come as an intervention to take him home. And we may be surprised that the family of Jesus, again, have been in Nazareth. They find themselves in Capernaum. We can sense the rumors that have reached his mother and his family. And now they're at the very edge of the of the crowd. They come. There's a massive amount of people who are surrounding Jesus. And as they come to the outskirts of the crowd, the text tells us they're calling him. You can almost hear their voices. Jesus, Jesus, it's your mother. It's your brother. It's your family. Jesus, we're here for you. Jesus, we know what's best for you. We've come to take you home. Now, one of the things that you probably shouldn't do is, again, remember the context. Don't forget the miracles. Don't forget the statements that Jesus has already made. Don't forget the reports that have gotten to them. Jesus is not himself. He's, he isn't eating. He doesn't seem to be sleeping right. We put out plates of food and he refuses to eat them. Religious leaders and perhaps some of the crowd um, accused him of being crazy. You can imagine as this ripple effect is taking place throughout the crowds has the accusation come to him that the religious leaders think that there that there's something more than just him being crazy that some have even suggested that he's demonically possessed that the reason he has the ability to do the things that he does he has supernatural powers from supernatural beings but these beings aren't from heaven it may be that the family understands they're deeply concerned now here's what else we know, the religious leaders have already hinted that they're willing to kill him. In John's gospel, we read something that we need to know about this particular group and this particular passage and the family that's coming for him. In John's gospel, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we read, For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, you, you, most people are familiar with the fact that Jesus had a mother named Mary. Lindsay sang to that issue very beautifully and very eloquently. Mary had a husband. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible know that his name was Joseph. 
But now he is conspicuous, not by his presence, but by his absence. Whatever happened to Joseph is a bit of a mystery. Now, the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches teach that Mary remained a virgin or what has been called the real and perpetual virginity of Mary. And that's the religious tradition that I grew up in. I grew up in, in a tradition that believed that, that and taught was taught that that. Jesus had no brothers. The Roman Catholic Church offers the argument the brothers and sisters mentioned in the New Testament are cousins. Perhaps they're close relatives. Perhaps they're siblings from what might have been a first marriage of Joseph. But the explanation is not convincing, at least to me. Because whatever marriage is, it probably isn't where you marry this person and then she says, hey, by the way, I'm the Virgin Mary. And and by the way, we can never, ever have marital relations ever. How many of you would go? Oh, fine. You see, that's not normal. That's unusual. And so part of the point that is, is being given is the reality is that the Bible teaches that Jesus, well, was Mary's firstborn, that she gave birth clearly as a virgin. But after that, she had other sons and daughters in Matthew, chapter 13, verse 55, Mark, chapter six, verse three, John, chapter two, verse 12. And then in verse chapter seven, verse three, verse five, verse 10, Acts, chapter one, verse 14, first Corinthians nine, five, Galatians one, 19. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus had brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, in verse 32, it says, and the multitude was sitting around him. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside. They're looking for you. They're seeking you. In other words, the multitude begins this ripple effect as the outskirts of the crowd are starting to be penetrated. And again, you can hear the screams, Jesus, Jesus, it's your mother. It's your brothers. We're here to take you home. We're here to take you home. By the way, this is the only mention of Mary in Mark's gospel. Also, the last mention of Mary in the New Testament is after the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus is risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. She's a part of that group who are in the upper room. According to church tradition, well, according to the Bible, first, you'll remember that Jesus assigns John the Apostle the responsibility to, for the care and custody of his mother. As a matter of fact, according to church tradition, after Jesus rises from the dead, when the church begins to grow, John, the apostle, having care and custody of Mary, will take her to the city of Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, she will live out her life and she will die a normal death. In verse 33, it says, but he answered them, saying, who is my mother? Or my brothers. Some of you might be taken aback by that statement. Who is my mother? Especially you mothers. Can you imagine your child going, who is my mother? And you go, I'm your mother. You, you don't just dismiss me on that. 
you know, hey, think about it. I carried you for nine months and you can throw out a number, 21 hours of labor, 24 hours of labor, 27 hours of labor. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those situations where you read this and you think, is he being condescending? But the answer is no. Let me help you understand and think through what's taking place. This is one of those rare moments when Jesus will contrast his earthly family, that's flesh and blood, with his spiritual family. And again, some have suggested that Jesus is downgrading or declaring that human ties, blood relatives, family are irrelevant. But that's not the point of the passage. And clearly that's not the teaching in the Bible or the New Testament. Jesus will demonstrate a love and a care for his family throughout his ministry. You've all heard the expression that blood is thicker than water. And so it is. But there is something even thicker. It's a kinship or a relationship in Christ and in God. And so whatever else this question means, the question that Jesus is presenting isn't permission to neglect your family or ignore your family or abuse your family or to ignore your mother and father, your brothers and your sisters. So what makes a genuine family a genuine family? Again, Jesus will use this opportunity to teach some much needed lessons. The lesson will include, well, how are we to think about Mary? What should we do when our family misunderstands us or our ministry? In what way do spiritual relationships take precedence over natural relationships? And so Jesus will give one of the most important single sentences about discipleship, fellowship, and family in verse 34. Look what it says. And he looked around in a circle. And those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Now, I want to draw attention to the beginning of the phrase in verse 34. And he looked around. The Greek participle is peri, blesamentos. It's the same word that's used in verse 5. Go back in your chapter, chapter 3, to verse 5. You'll remember that Jesus is accused of being a lawbreaker on the Sabbath. And in verse 5 it says, And when he had looked around them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, same word, when he looked around, it speaks of that momentary flash of anger. For those of you who are with me in that particular study, remember the picture is Jesus is looking at the religious leaders eyeball to eyeball. He's looking at them and he is wondering how they can be so completely detached and wrong about what it means to have a right relationship with God. Here, once again, Jesus is moving around a circle. And that word, by the way, he looked around in a circle. The, the Greek word is cyclo. Those who are seated around him, the picture that I want to draw, that the text draws for us is Jesus. 
Jesus is in the middle. There is a circle of people who are around him and another concentric circle of people who are around him. And the circle gets larger and larger and larger. And he is looking at them. He is looking into their eyes. He, and, and again, he is, the, the issue seems to be that it's a generation of emotion. In verse 5, it's anger. So what is the emotion here? We're not told. But clearly, it's an emotional response in part. I'm going to ask you a question. And I want you to think about the answer carefully. Who's sitting in that circle? Who is in the immediate circle around Jesus? And who is in the next circle and the next circle? Who are those people who are closest to Jesus and to have access to Jesus? You might think, well, his disciples, clearly they believe in him and they follow him. Who else? Do you think that there might be some sinners and some tax collectors in the crowd? Is it possible that interested sinners are there looking for love and looking for mercy? Is it possible that some of the people in the crowd are looking for healing and looking for help? Is it possible that some of them are even the self-righteous scribes, religious leaders? They're pressing in. They want a closer look. They're not sure what to think about. Them, but at least they're there. And then I need to ask you the next question. Who isn't there? Who's not there? And guess who's not there? His family. His family aren't there. Now, we know that there's a group of religious leaders who have no intention of following him whatsoever. They're really interested in killing him. And why aren't his family there? We've already learned John chapter seven, verse five. They don't believe in Jesus. What do you mean they don't believe in Jesus? They don't believe in Jesus as Lord. In other words, these are family, and yes, they have the same mother. Yes, they grew up in the same village. Yes, they speak the same language. Yes, they had shared experiences. They had the same language, same culture, same intimate experiences. And make no mistake about it, the family aren't enemies of Jesus. They don't hate him. They're concerned about him. But I need to draw something to your attention that you may not have noticed. The religious leaders hate him and want to get rid of him and kill him. Why? Because they think that by killing him, they can get rid of him. They can get rid of his speech. They can get rid of his ministry. And he'll be gone. By the way, will they succeed in their goal of killing him? What do you think the answer is? And by the way, in succeeding in their goal to kill him, Will they get rid of the ministry of Jesus? Because something surprising happened, something terrible for them, but wonderful for us. He comes back to life. You can't make the ministry of Jesus go away by killing him because he comes back to life. But I want to draw something else to your attention. The family of Jesus wants the ministry of Jesus to go away as well. The religious leaders are motivated Clearly by things that are impure. I'm going to suggest to you that the family are motivated by things that are what you and I would normally call pure. 
They have a real care for him. They have a real concern for him. They clearly care about what happens to him. But they also don't understand him. And they also refuse to submit to his authority. So what do they want to do with Jesus? They want to take him home. In what sense? In the sense that a crazy family member has gone out of the off the reservation. He's out of control. If he doesn't get killed, if he doesn't wind up killing himself, if he doesn't stop healing people, if he doesn't stop delivering the demon possessed, if he doesn't stop bringing people back to life, if he doesn't stop antagonizing the religious establishment, they're going to kill him. And so the family wants to pacify Jesus. They want to tame Jesus. They want to control Jesus. They want Jesus to act rationally and reasonably. They want to control him. And guess what? They're the family, and so they get to determine what constitutes reasonable, what constitutes rationality. How is it possible? How is it possible that they could be so close to Jesus, so familiar with Jesus, so intimate with the details of Jesus's life? But they don't know him. They don't believe in him. They want Jesus to be safe and normal. Why? Because the other thing is too hard. What other thing? The other thing about. Believing him, believing his message, believing the message that he's the Messiah, believing the message that he has come into the world to save the world. It's by believing the message that he came from God and that he was there with a message from God and for God and for the people who needed to hear the truth about what it means to experience forgiveness and hope and a right relationship with God. And I grew up in a religious tradition where I was taught that Mary herself was born immaculately, that she was free from original sin and that she never did anything wrong and that she didn't need a savior. Is that true or is that false? It is false. As a matter of fact, she is going to come to grips with who she has given birth to. In order for her to be saved, in order for the brothers to be saved, in order for the sisters to be saved, proximity and intimacy and DNA, biology and genealogy wouldn't give you entry into heaven. Guess what? In order to go to heaven, they're going to have to go to heaven the way everyone else goes to heaven. By grace, through faith, they're going to have to repent of their sin and they're going to have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. The family of Jesus were calling out to Jesus. Come to us. They're calling to Jesus, but Jesus was calling to them. They want to control Jesus, but Jesus wanted to control them. And maybe you called out to Jesus. Maybe you called out to him, but you want to control him. You want him. You want him in your life, and you, but you want a safe Jesus. You want a reasonable Jesus. You want a rational Jesus. You want a Jesus who you tell Jesus what to do. Jesus doesn't tell you what to do. You're calling to Jesus, but Jesus is calling to you. 
You want to control Jesus, but but Jesus wants to control you. The religious leaders think he's dangerous, and so they're, they're going to kill him. The multitude believe that he's a prophet, a miracle worker, a religious entitlement program where, where you can get what you want from him. The tax collectors and sinners think that he's a pal and a buddy and a friend. The disciples think that he's the Messiah. The brothers and the sisters think he's crazy. And his mother? I think it would be too much to say that she thinks he's crazy. I think it would be reading way more into the text than the text is telling us. But I think it is safe to say that she thinks something's terribly wrong. She thinks that something is terribly wrong, and unless she intervenes, it could get way worse. But even if you're Jesus' mother, it's not a good idea to try to control him or to manipulate him or to make him say things or do things that he's not prepared to say or do. What about you? What is it that you think? Do you see Jesus and religion as some convenient way to meet moral people? Do you see Jesus as a better alternative to radical Islam or the mysticism of Buddhism or the rigid requirements of a work-based man-made religion? Do you see Jesus as some moral obligation or religious duty because of the threat of hell? Do you see Jesus as a gravy train or miracle worker who exists in order to fix your problems? What do you think? Is Jesus the great and cosmic judge in the sky waiting for you to make a mistake like Santa, keeping a record of who's naughty, who's nice, seeing if the bad deeds are going to outweigh the good deeds and looking for any excuse to toss you into hell? Is Jesus your good buddy who loves to fish and smoke a good cigar and have a brewski and argue conservative politics with? Or is Jesus the liberal social justice enthusiast who motivates you to join every cause and embrace every movement, but you never, ever come to grips with what he wants from you? Is he the son of God and the savior? Who's looking for allegiance and surrender? Or is Jesus some sort of religious timeshare? Hey, you know what? I'll love you on Sundays and I'll go to church and I'll do the church thing and it'll keep the wife happy and it'll keep my husband happy or it'll it'll provide a good moral foundation for the children. But the rest of your life and leisure time are devoted to the daily grind of what you consider normal living. The religious leaders hate him. But they love religion, don't they? They love religion because religion provides them with a smug sense of security and approval. Religion for them is deeply comfortable and personally valuable. The problem is their religion doesn't include Jesus as the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And how to have access to God and a real relationship with God. The religious leaders are Filled with pride in their religion. And they have a false sense of security and approval. 
and the family of Jesus, they don't understand him. And they clearly don't want to submit to his authority. And if they wanted to follow him, they would be following him, but they're not. The multitudes love the food. They love the healing. They love the deliverance. They love the assistance that Jesus gives, but they're unwilling to move. The moment that commitment or sacrifice is extended, Jesus will say, come and follow me. He'll say, come and take up your cross and follow me. You mean this is going to cost me something? Yes. What's it going to cost me? Everything. I thought grace is free. It is. I thought I saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. You are. The disciples and the apostles want to be with him. And they want to learn from him. And they want grace and mercy. They want to be empowered by him and guided by him and work with him and live for him and be under his command. The tax collectors see mercy and love. And I need to tell you something. He's more than happy to give mercy and love. As a matter of fact, when you ask Jesus, tell me who you're looking for. He said, I'm looking for those kinds of people. I'm looking for empty people so that I can fill them. I'm looking for guilty people so I can forgive them. I'm looking for hurting people. So I can offer and extend wholeness and wellness to them. And Jesus is willing to redefine relations in a radical new way. Because guess what? Access to him isn't going to be based on genealogy, biology, DNA, language, culture. It's going to be something else. And that something else is found in verse 35. Read it for yourself. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Remember what a family is? Those who share a common experience. Remember what a family is? Those who share common interests. Remember what a family is? Those who share a common Outlook and plan and goal for their life. What is a family? A family is a group of people who who have a common obedience to God in Christ. And so when Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister and my mother. What is the will of God and how do we do it? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I'm going to give you a theological answer, but I'm not. E.C. Baird wrote a clever little line. He said, quote, well, here's the answer. True. The nearest thing that should be done that can that he can do through you. Isn't that good? That's something you would learn in Sunday school. What is the will of God? Well, here's the answer. True. The nearest thing that should be done that he can do through you. You, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? What is the will of God? Minimum, 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 the will of God has to be that He wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants your submission. 
As a matter of fact, the religious leaders in John chapter 6, verse 29, and then again in verse 28, well, beginning in verse 28, and then in verse 29, the, the people came to Jesus. They said, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? It was their way of saying, Jesus, tell us what we need to do to have access to God, to have a right relationship with God, to be able to approach God. And here's Jesus's answer in verse 29 of chapter 6 in John's gospel. This is the work of God. That you should believe in him whom he sent. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say join the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. He didn't say become a religious person. He didn't say get a Bible and watch religious TV. He said this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Who did God send? Jesus' claim is God sent him from heaven. The claim is that, that God sent Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but that through Jesus the world might be saved. The Bible says that Jesus came. And we heard Lindsay talk and quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That belief is a trust and a confidence. Remember, the family of Jesus believed in Jesus. If you went up to, to, to Jude and James and the rest of his brothers and sisters and said, Do you believe in Jesus? Of course we believe in Jesus. Yes, sure, he's our, he's our older brother. There he is. See, we grew up in the same village in Nazareth. We read the same Hebrew Bible. We went to the same school. We went through all of the same formalities. Everything that he did, we did. The same joy. We experienced the same joy, the same laughter, the same disappointments. Everything that a family goes through, we went through it. No, no. I mean, do you believe him? What do you mean believe? Do you trust that he is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? Do you believe that God sent him and that it is his sacrifice, his submission and substitution that you get to take that he has taken your place? Augustine famously wrote, he who created us without our help will not save us without our consent. No wonder Jesus said. Believe in him. You see, God made us with the capacity to love and to choose and love by its very nature must be consensual. Manipulation and compulsion isn't love. God does not compel the unwilling. He embraces the willing. That's why Jesus said, come to me. Believe in me. By the way, I think you all know that you cannot learn to make right decisions. Unless you're free to make wrong decisions. You cannot learn to make right decisions. Unless you're free to make the wrong decisions. And what an amazing gamble. What an amazing gamble. That in order for there to be real love, there has to be real choice. Jonathan Edwards is sometimes called the last Puritan. He wrote, quote, earthly fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children and earthly friends are all shadows. But God is the substance. 
Jesus is making it sure that we understand that physical relationship does not provide access to Jesus. The relationship that counts, the relationship that matters is obedience to God. Our kinship and relationship is based on our spiritual understanding of God and our willingness to do the will of God. God is a spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus says true friendship and fellowship, kinship in the kingdom is based on being a follower of Jesus. And you can't follow God. Unless you're in spiritual union with Jesus. Our kinship is based on knowing and doing the will of God. In John chapter 1 verse 12 it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. And by that, they don't just simply say you believe that there's this guy named Jesus. But rather all that that name implies. That the Lord is salvation. Jesus makes it clear that doing the will of God generates way more credit than flesh and blood ties. The lesson is clear. Jesus is putting God's interest ahead of family interest. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, If any man comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, unquote. Is Jesus saying I have to hate my mom and my dad, my brothers and my sisters? No, Jesus is actually saying exactly the opposite. He's saying that your affection for your commitment to all of the fond feelings that well up inside of you when you think of your mother and you think of your father and you think of your grandparents and you think of your children and you think of your grandchildren. If you can imagine a world where they're not in the world, then there's something really wrong with you in the sense that there's an affection, there's a supernatural affection, but even that supernatural affection pales and becomes practically non-existent in light and in relationship to what it means to have a right relationship with God and Christ. Someone in the first service came up to me and said that a some presidential candidate went on a local radio program and Basically talked about how our love and our loyalty has to be to God first. And the radio announcer had a fit. That somehow loyalty to God and loyalty to Jesus is more important than the loyalty to family. And he couldn't bring himself to believe that such a thing could be true. I remember watching many, many years ago. Some of you know the movie Chariots of Fire where Eric Little is running a race in the Olympics. And one of the heats is on Sunday and he refuses because of his deeply held conviction that he's not going to run on Sunday. He's going to go to church on Sunday. He drops out of the event. And there's a scene in the movie where this British man comes in and he goes, in my day, it was different. In my day, it was country first and God second. The idea of love and loyalty to God first and to Jesus first isn't unique or strange in any generation. Jesus said, the cords are stronger than biology, genealogy, language, flesh and blood family. 
who have no knowledge of Jesus, no love for Jesus, no interest in Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to serve Jesus. They don't want to know the will of God. They don't want to do the will of God. They may seem strange and distant to us. But that doesn't mean we don't have affection for them or responsibility towards them. And we know and understand that our family may bitterly resent our loyalties to Jesus. Jesus warned us in Matthew 10, 34. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword in verse 35. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those in his own household, he said. Are you telling me that Jesus could come and tear up families? Yes. Especially if one family says my love and loyalty is to Satan and to my flesh and to the God of this world, to the empty promises that this world has to offer. What's your loyalty to Jesus? Really? You would put God and Jesus ahead of your mother, your father, your brother, your sister? Yes. Well, that means you don't love us. No, it means exactly the opposite. It means I've never loved you more. It means I've never cared for you more. As a matter of fact, knowing and loving Jesus has reinvigorated my love for my unbelieving family. Christians are forced to make difficult and painful decisions. We have to do the will of God, which is far more important. In Luke's gospel, there's this strange outburst that takes place in Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus is teaching. It says in Luke 11:27, and as it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which nursed you. But he said. More than that. Blessed are those who. Hear the word of God and keep it. He didn't say. My mom doesn't matter. He doesn't say. We shouldn't be respectful. He doesn't say that at all. He's basically pointing people to something way more important. You remember the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, they claimed relationship with God through the covenants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The nation claimed Messiah by virtue of blood descent. And Jesus is making the remarkable statement that blood ties do not make spiritual relationships. And the only ones that Jesus is willing to accept are those who are related to him by faith. And in that multitude, there were those who made claim to God by virtue of the fact that they were direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But being Jewish was an acceptable basis to being admitted into the kingdom of God in their wrong thinking. Not in their right thinking. And that's why Jesus said, no. In order to have entrance into the kingdom. It has to be by faith in him and trust in him and not by accident of birth. When Jesus says, for whoever does the will of God. You have to understand something that the will of God isn't defined in terms of what's best for me. Or what's in my best happiness. 
In the Bible, the will of God means at least three different things. God's sovereign will, which is eternal, abiding, sometimes secret and sometimes unrevealed. There's God's moral will, which are the commands that are revealed in the Bible that teach us those things that we must believe in principles for living. We might even think of God's individual will, an ideal God honoring plan. In Jeremiah 29, 11, we say, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Yes, the immediate context is Concerning the southern kingdom and the people of Jerusalem as they're facing an imminent invasion by the Babylonian Empire. But I think the principle is true for those who are a part of God's forever family. When he says, I want to give you a future and a hope. The emphasis is that God is the giver of the future and the hope. Do you want security? Do you want assurance? Do you want peace? Do you want forgiveness? In Psalm 37, 23, we read the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. In Psalm 37, 23, when it says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, the implication is the moment you begin to pick up your feet and go in a particular direction, that God is going to light up that road. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, most of us were subjected to the Wizard of Oz. I was subjected to it every year, year after year, from 1957 to 1963. We had to watch it every year, every year. And you remember, follow the yellow brick road. Follow the yellow brick road. Follow, follow, follow. And remember, the, the road would light up. So that you always knew the direction that you needed to go. Haven't you ever prayed and go, Lord, just give me a yellow brick road so I can follow, 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 follow the yellow brick road. But that's exactly what the Bible is. It will animate the promises and tell you where to go. You know. The Bible encourages us to pray for the knowledge of his will in Colossians 1.9. The Bible exhorts us to prove what is the acceptable will of God in Romans 12.1. The Bible says that God will direct the paths of those who trust him in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. The Bible says that, that you have instruction and counsel in the way that you should go in Psalm 32.8. The Bible says that that direction, once you start following in that direction, will look like this. It will not be selfish, but selfless. It will not be harmful, but it will be helpful. And here's what else it will look like. You'll be doing things for other people rather than doing things for yourself. Jesus said in John 6, 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. By the way, after Jesus dies and rises from the dead and he sends out his own apostles, he says, in the same way that my father sent me, I'm going to send you. How did the father send the son? With love. Equipped. Prepared. With a message. With a plan. How's God going to send you? In love. Prepared with a message and a plan. And guess what? We're done with chapter three. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we do pray for that person. Lord, who is calling out to Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would pause and they would allow Jesus to call to them. Lord, I pray for that person who wants to control Jesus. They want a tame Jesus, a secure Jesus, a normal Jesus, a sensible Jesus, a non-threatening Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that it's your desire to guide them gently, thoughtfully, but clearly through life's trials and tribulations. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's looking for a comfortable Jesus and a Jesus who can be easily manipulated. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. That the true Jesus in the New Testament is one who demands love and loyalty. But he also promises forgiveness and hope and strength to do exactly what needs to be done. Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.